This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week, number 46, Darnell Coles, third base for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Before we get to Darnell, we do have some follow-up from last week's episode about Cleveland mustard. What's hot in Cleveland? Apparently it's the mustard. There was a mustard controversy in Cleveland in 1989. Corey Snyder was involved in this controversy somehow. We kind of made an allusion to it. We thought this was right up our alley as we enjoy local delicacies. And I got some response from John, who had suggested the Corey Snyder episode, that there are strong feelings about specific mustards along Lake Erie. There are two Cleveland mustards. There's Burtman Ballpark Mustard and Stadium Mustard. Joe Burtman invented this mustard. It's nearly 100 years old. And Burtman started working with a guy named David Dwoskin, starting in 1968, selling what was called Authentic Stadium Mustard. Dwoskin would sell the mustard in retail outlets, while Bertman focused on larger institutions selling the gallon jugs of mustard to places like Municipal Stadium, then Jacobs Field, now Progressive Field. According to Dwoskin, the two mustards, the retail and the institutional, were made in the same factory, and they were made in Chicago. So not even a <laughs> Cleveland mustard at the time. I think that that's changed. I think now they are made in Ohio. But in 1982, there's a disagreement between these guys. And Dwoskin continues to sell what is known as Stadium Mustard. And Bertman markets his mustard under Bertman Ballpark Mustard. And this is where the controversy comes in that Corey was involved in. In 1989, Bertman offers to sell his mustard to Municipal Stadium, but it comes in at $2 per case more than Stadium Mustard. So the Municipal Stadium staff has a taste test. Team staff from both the football and baseball teams have a taste test. And maybe Corey Snyder was involved in this. And apparently nobody could tell the difference. So they picked Stadium because it was cheaper. So there's an AP article at the time. And it clarified something for me. I think in the article that we referenced about Corey and his part in this, they made it seem like Corey picked a bland yellow mustard like a Heinz. Well, Heinz is made in Pittsburgh, so we know we won't we wouldn't use that. <laughs> Definitely not using that. <laughs> it appears that Corey just picked the new mustard, which was Stadium mustard, another Cleveland mustard. So I think that Corey's part in this is maybe a little bit overblown. However, even though these are both Cleveland style spicier mustards, Cleveland fans were not happy. And there's some quotes in this article that I I deeply appreciate. This one guy, Mike McGonaga, says, It's a little different, but the taste is basically the same. What makes everybody mad is that it was based on price. They broke a tradition without asking anybody. Normally, I'm not an opinionated guy, but on this, you've got to dig your heels in. Yeah, David, and what I love best about this quote is that in the story, it says that Mike McGonaga, 40 years old of suburban Bay Village, gave this quote while eating a hot dog. Quite a bit of skill to be able to spit out these words while you're downing a dog. Both sides of this mustard debate claim to have the original recipe. 
And Stadium Mustard was the original name, so even the, quote, imposter mustard kept the original name. Stadium is now sold at First Energy Stadium, home of the Browns. And despite that 1989 contract blip, Bertman is still available at Progressive Field. Stadium Mustard is said to be spicier, while Bertman's is said to be sweeter. In a blind taste test in 2016 outside of Progressive Field, Bertman received 49% support compared to Stadium's 44% support. And I think those unaccounted for say they either preferred a yellow mustard, which seems anathema to this debate, or they preferred ketchup. I think you can put whatever you want on your hot dog. No accounting for taste. So in my other podcast about baseball condiments called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heaters, it's well known that acid enhances flavors. So it's why the vinegar in both ketchup or mustard or relish makes a big difference in enhancing the flavor of, in this case, the dog and the bun and all the other ingredients. I don't see any need to have a tribal aversion to ketchup or mustard or anything else. But condiments help us appreciate what's underneath. Hopefully in the end, we can resolve this in just enjoying more encased meats while watching sporting events. I think that this also points out something that I enjoy about both this podcast and going to live sporting events in different places, and that is regional differences and regional foods available at a baseball stadium. I think give it a sense of place. We are recording this the first week of March, and we'll be attending a live stadium sporting event later today. So we'll be sure to report back if there are any any new condiments or other regional delicacies that we find at Soldier Field today. Now let's move on to today's card, and that is Darnell Coles. Why did we choose Darnell today? It was pointed out that we hadn't done a Pittsburgh player in a while. Did I intentionally pick a Pirates player who wasn't very good? No. I did pick Darnell Coles because he has a Sabre bio, and I was kind of tired this week. So <laughs> thank you, Malcolm Allen, for the great work on the Sabre bio. And thank you, Darnell Coles. I learned a lot uh, about Darnell's interesting career. He had his best seasons surrounded a pretty disappointing 1987 season that shows up on the back of this card. But he ended up playing for eight teams over 14 MLB seasons, also played in Japan, and has gone on to a long coaching career and had a a pretty interesting career. Excellent. Let's go to the front of number 46. And David, right away, there's some things I like about this card and some things I don't like. So what I love for sure is the pirate logo on this warm-up jersey. The old-style bucko on the front has a giant pirate hat where the skull and crossbones on the top of his hat is almost as big as his entire face. It's a very large hat. And these 1988 Topps cards know a lot about having large hats, so that bucko (laughs) fits right in. Yeah, Darnell himself has a pretty big hat. Also really like his hair. His batting gloves, too. We've got the the white and yellow mustardy gloves, I guess you could say. Yes. I, I don't know if that's a Cleveland mustard or a Pittsburgh mustard, but I think that's a good look. He's got his, his hands reaching for the bat as if he's about to take a little practice chop. But he's also looking off into the distance and is confused. Yeah, he looks like he's been dropped in and has been told, okay, pose for a photo and then all of a sudden, the demigorgon appeared in the stadium across the way, and he's been told he has to fight it. 
and he just is kind of looking agape at a, a terrible creature that he is going to have to try to vanquish with this bat. Yeah, the next step here is either he's got to turn and run away, or he is about to, to take on some kind of vicious creature. But it's very big, and it's in the upper deck. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he also has a mustache here that's unlike any that we've seen yet that goes down and around the mouth. If the 50% line of a goatee was, you know, right at the center, the center of your mouth, this goes about 55% of the way around from the top down. So this is quite an unusual mustache. And while Darnell is featured here in the pirate's uniform, that might be one of the shorter portions of this episode talking about his time on the Pirates. He he spent a lot of time with a bunch of different teams, including many seasons where he split the season between clubs and rarely spent a season at the same club. So a very long baseball reference page. Now let's flip to the back of 46 and we have Darnell Cole's third baseman, height 6'1", weight 185, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Mariners in the first round of 1980 born june 2nd 1962 in san bernardino california with a home in rialto california darnell was born in san bernardino which reminds me of the song san Bernardino sunburn by the eagles of death metal but he was raised in rialto california darnell's father left the family shortly after his birth and he didn't have much contact with darnell he maybe went to a couple little league games uh, as when Darnell was a kid, but his mother Velma remarried when Darnell was eight, and Darnell credits Velma with being the guiding influence in his life and and often working overtime and multiple jobs to provide for her family. Growing up, Darnell was a great athlete, making local news even before he made it to high school. He had some little league exploits, track and basketball successes that got him in the San Bernardino newspaper. He was a junior Olympic qualifier in hurdles, but he couldn't afford to travel to Dayton, Ohio, to compete in those junior Olympics, unfortunately. Darnell went to Eisenhower High School, and other famous Eisenhower alumni include director John Singleton, 49ers Hall of Famer, safety Ronnie Lott, Wilson Cruz, who was an LGBTQ advocate and an actor who played Ricky on My So-Called Life, as well as Mr. Marlin slash star racquetball player Jeff Conine. (laughs) And while at Eisenhower, Darnell was a multi-sport star, captaining the baseball, basketball, and track teams, and also starring on the football team as a wide receiver and defensive back. His coach thought that he could be the next Ronnie Lott. He was going to be a star athlete, whichever path he chose. And then during a football game his senior year, he slipped on the field, an opponent fell on him and chipped a bone in his knee. He said he could see his athletic career slipping away as he lay on the field. He ended up needing knee surgery, and he missed the basketball and track season. But nevertheless, he signed a letter of intent to play football at UCLA. But then during the baseball season, MLB scouts started showing up and really showing an interest in Darnell. He hit 513 in 14 games that he made it back for, And he made the honor roll and was named Southern California's Boys Athlete of the Year for 1980, which is particularly impressive considering that's the same year that Daryl Strawberry and Eric Davis were Southern California seniors. He was really highly regarded ahead of that 1980 draft. 
the Mets came to town and they looked at his knee before selecting Daryl Strawberry with the number one overall pick in that draft. The Mariners, however, weren't concerned about Darnell's knee. The Mariners scouting director said Darnell was the best high school player he had ever seen. Later in the 80s, Mariners scouts would say that Coles and Ken Griffey Jr. were two of the best high school prospects they had ever seen, that they were equals in all areas, hitting for power, hitting for average, speed, arm, and instinct. And the Mariners ended up selecting Darnell with the number six pick in the draft, and they told him that they would have picked him even if he was on crutches. So he decides to forego UCLA football and took an $82,000 bonus to sign with Seattle. And with that, he's off to the minor leagues. He ends up at Bellingham first, playing in 35 games. And he struggled at first, hitting only 214. In 1981 and 1982, he plays at single-A level Wausau and then Bakersfield. At Wausau, he played with Harold Reynolds and Jim Presley, who would end up being his teammates at the Mariners. He improved each year, going from 274 to then 303. And at Bakersfield, he had 11 home runs and 27 steals as well. And with that, we get a fun fact as well. That is that he led the Midwest League shortstops with 66 double plays in 1981. And as the fun fact says, he was playing shortstop at the time, but he was struggling. Even though he led the league in double plays, he made 53 errors in 1981 and 73 in 1982. I don't think we've seen an error number that high. No, I don't think we have. <laughs> That's it's not great. And it was so bad that Darnell said he thought maybe football might have been a better option. And this becomes a, a little bit of a theme throughout Darnell's career. He seems like a really thoughtful guy. And in interviews during his career, it seemed like he would kind of get in his head about throwing and he knew he was making instinctual errors. He would get a ball at shortstop, look at second base, and think to himself, I can't make that throw and throw to first instead. And he knew it wasn't right, but he just, he said that his, his mind wasn't always in the right place. Part of that pressure may have been hearing the footsteps of who's coming up behind him. In 1983, it ends up being a pretty eventful year. The Mariners have Spike Owen as a shortstop prospect, and the two start competing in spring training to see who would be at double A versus triple A. And Darnell ends up losing out. So he starts at Chattanooga, double A, while Spike Owen moves up to triple A. But later that season, Spike gets called up to the Mariners and Darnell moves up to triple A behind him. And things start to click for him. Finally, he hits 316 with 10 homers at Salt Lake City, triple A. And for the whole season between those two different leagues, he had 23 steals and 55 errors. And maybe it's just because the Mariners weren't very good, but they still gave him a chance in September with a call up to the big leagues. He was hitting so well that they were able to look past some of the defensive difficulties. And in 27 games, he hit 283, a pretty solid start. He struck out as a pinch hitter against Ron Guidry in his first at bat. There's no shame in striking out against Louisiana Lightning. He started at third base the last 26 games of the season, and he made only four errors at third. He said he felt more comfortable there, and maybe he should have been at third base all along. Yeah, it really seems like from the beginning of this that you have a natural athlete who's really good at a lot of things, but then you put him at shortstop, which is just not the right position for him, and there's no reason he has to play shortstop. So the move to third base seems to go great. 
Big thing that Coles is wondering, though, is will the Mariners pick another third baseman to give him competition? And lucky for him, they didn't. So it looked like things would go well in 1984. The manager of the Mariners said that Coles didn't have any weaknesses and Coles was likely going to be the starter. But unfortunately, Darnell injures his wrist in preseason and was out of the lineup for a couple of weeks. When he returns, as we see from his line on the card, he had a pretty tough time. He hit only 161. He lost the starting job to Jim Presley, and he spent part of the season at AAA, where he hit 318. So another theme of his career, he's too good for AAA, but not quite there yet for a full-time job in, in Major League Baseball. Further proving that in 1985, he hits 320 at AAA Calgary, earning a call-up to cover for an injured Spike Owen, and then is sent back down after Owen returns and Coles is only hitting 237. He also had a lot of injuries throughout his career, so back at AAA, he gets injured again. He's still pretty young, and the Mariners really want him to, to do some training in the offseason. He could be kind of emotional, and while he's generally regarded as being a pretty positive guy, he also would have some emotional responses to Coach requests. He's pretty honest with reporters and coaches throughout his career, and when he was sent to the Instructional League, after one game he was told to run laps, and he refused. The Mariners send him home, and then they traded him to Detroit in exchange for Rich Monteleone, a pitcher. One could see this as uh, emotional and run-ins with coaches. One might also say that's pretty insulting as a professional athlete to be told to run laps. Yeah, and there's some other incidents in his career that are maybe a little bit more indicative of a young player or somebody who's frustrated. This one, I think he just, he was over it in the instructional <laughs> league and didn't want to be there. In Detroit, he wasn't initially guaranteed a job, but he gained a fan in Sparky Anderson. Sparky said, for the first time in 17 years, I have the chance to develop a bona fide, excellent third baseman. And Sparky gave him a lot of one-on-one -on -one instruction, and it paid off. Coles started 57 of Detroit's first 59 games in 1986, and he hit 292 with nine home runs. And about it, Darnell said, if I could just keep doing things right as I did this spring, Sparky won't have any other worry at third base for the next 15 years. But unfortunately, he then got chicken pox and was out for two weeks. Yeah, the injury bug and... Other bugs keep biting. He had a couple slumps, but as the season ended, he had a pretty consistent first and second half. Ten homers in the first half, ten in the second. His average dropped off a little bit in the second half, but he had a higher on-base percentage the second half of the season. So he finished with a two seventy three average, 20 home runs, 30 doubles, 86 RBIs in 142 games. I was pretty surprised by that line when I looked at the back of this card. On defense, he's still struggling a little bit. He had the third most errors among AL third basemen. Despite his positive 1986 season, the Tigers enter the 1987 season looking to move Darnell to the outfield if they can find a new third baseman. Not a bad idea given, <laughs> given his performance in the field. But unfortunately, they don't find one. So Darnell goes into the season as the presumptive third baseman and promptly makes six errors in his first seven games. In one game, he made three errors that led to seven runs and overall made 17 errors in 36 games at third. And this just leads to frustration for everybody. In one game after warmups, he threw a ball 
clear out of Tiger Stadium. Over the <laughs> roof, out of the stadium. He's removed from the lineup. There's clearly frustration with Darnell, and that also boils over, so he's suffering at the plate. So before he could cover up some of those defensive deficiencies with a decent offensive performance, now he's hitting only 181. He suffers another injury. He's sent back down to AAA. When he's called up in late June, the Tigers had put Tom Brookins in at third, and Darnell was moved to the outfield. He felt like the Tigers had given up on him, and he also answered bluntly when asked, how much of this is your fault? And he said, all of it. He was willing to take some of that blame and talk openly about his defensive deficiencies and kind of getting in his head, and also take some of the blame for the difficulties that that presented. So the Tigers, they don't need a backup third baseman who can't field well, and they don't really need another utility outfielder. So we go to this way to the clubhouse on the card, and that that was Darnell was traded by the Tigers to the Pirates with a player to be named later for infielder Jim Morrison, August 7th, 1987. Traded for the Lizard King himself. This is a different Jim Morrison. This Jim Morrison was a veteran infielder who would end up retiring after the 1988 season. So Darnell left a team that would go on to win the AL East and goes to Pittsburgh joining a team that's in fifth place, 18 and a half games out of first. After the trade, the Pirates improved. They were 11 games over 500 for the rest of the season. Still not enough to get the team over 500 for the 1987 season. I think they finished 80 and 82. But Darnell came to Pittsburgh, platoons in right field with R.J. Reynolds, uh, I think also (laughs) not the cigarette baron. And he performed slightly better at the plate. But unlike a lot of the guys that we talk about, 1987 was not his best season. The rabbit ball was not really helping. His stats might have looked even worse if not for a September 30th performance against the Cubs, where he went four for four with three home runs, two of them off of the ageless Jamie Moyer, and he had six RBIs. That performance actually took his average up over 200 for the season. He ended at 201 with 10 home runs and 39 RBIs. So right over the Mendoza line, thanks to that season-ending performance. In 1988, the journey just continues. This baseball odyssey keeps going. He plays for seven teams over the next eight years. In 1988, he's in Pittsburgh at the beginning, but never really establishes himself. He starts for 55 of Pittsburgh's 93 games, hits only 237, and so the Pirates trade him back to Seattle. In Seattle, he was hitting 292 with 10 home runs. Then in 1989, he ends up playing the most games of his career, 146 games for Seattle. He plays in left field, right field, third, and first base, and also some DH, which must have made him happy not having to field. But heading into 1990, the Mariners trade away Jim Presley, their longtime third baseman. And at third base, they plan on using Darnell. And then they have this young guy named Edgar, who's you know maybe going to slot in there every once in a while. And early in the season, Darnell gets six starts in a row at third base and makes five errors in those six games. After that, he'd never play third base for the Mariners again. He also had some bad luck at the plate. In one of those games, he hit a young girl with a foul ball, and it broke her jaw. And in a fresh-out-of-a-movie storyline, he went to the hospital to visit this girl And he promises to hit a home run for her. And he hit one the next night. That was in April. And unfortunately, he didn't hit another home run until June 17th. 
The next day after that June 17th home run, he sent back to Detroit in exchange for Tracy Jones. Tracy Jones, who would go on to fight Bob Sebra in Bob Sebra's <laughs> last MLB appearance. And Darnell is reconnected with Sparky Anderson, but they were unable to get Darnell back on track. And after that season, he becomes a free agent. Goes to the Giants in 1991. Spends most of it in AAA for the Giants, making only 11 appearances in the majors. 1992, he was with the Reds, and he did have pretty decent success in 55 games. He hit 312, but then a sprained ankle ruined the back half of the season for him. And that offseason, he's 30 years old. He's close to being out of the game but decides to sign with the defending champion Toronto Blue Jays for 1993. And he said he didn't even know where they would slot him in. This is a championship-winning team. What use do they have for a 30-year-old guy who's moved around the league a lot? Who's he going to pinch hit for in a World Series-winning lineup? He ends up making some starts at third base and in the outfield and plays an important role, hitting 253 in 64 games, and he makes the playoff roster. But like Ed Hearn... He didn't play a game in the playoffs or the World Series, but he did get a ring. And that is what matters. 1994, he does something he had never done before, which is stay with the same team for consecutive full seasons. <laughs> he spent the year in Toronto, and it was pretty uneventful. He hit 210 and played in 48 games. But he did have a highlight when 1988 Olympian Ed Sprague was out of the lineup due to the birth of a child. Darnell subbed in at third base against the Twins. He hit a home run in the fifth inning off of famous football dad Pat Mahomes and then hit home runs in the eighth and ninth innings. He was only the 15th player at that point to hit three home runs in a game in both leagues and probably the most unlikely given how few home runs he ended up hitting. Yeah, I think he had 75 home runs in his career, but they came in some short bursts. After the season, even though he had spent the last two seasons in the big leagues on the same team, he ends up being granted free agency. He goes to St. Louis for 1995, and then he takes his talents to Nippon Professional Baseball to play for the Chunichi Dragons. Yeah, and I love this. I love this move. I love that he is sticking with baseball I wanted to keep going even after all of these false starts with so many different teams. He ends up playing for the Chinichi Dragons. Chinichi were one of the first NPB teams to sign Major League Baseball players when they signed Larry Doby and Don Newcomb in 1962. And there was another famous American who played for the Chinichi Dragons, David. It was Tom Selleck in the movie Mr. Baseball. All-time great baseball movie, Mr. Baseball. I, don't hold me to that. I have not watched that movie since <laughs> 1992 or whenever it came out. Those guys, Larry Doby, Don Newcomb, Tom Selleck, were all past their prime when they went to Chinichi. And I think Tom Selleck's situation, it did work out. But Doby and Newcomb, they had kind of lesser returns as they were in their late 30s. But Darnell was really good for Chinichi. He hit 302 in 130 games and also had 29 home runs. And that was good for fifth in the league. He also had an interesting story from his time in Japan. He's on first base and is planning to steal second. On a 2-2 count, he's given the steal sign six times in a row, but each time the ball is fouled off. So now the seventh or eighth time when he's going to run, he doesn't get the go sign, but through some miscommunication, he still runs anyway. And on this 2-2 count... 
it's ball three, thinking that it was actually ball four, Darnell just kind of jogs into second base. But it was actually ball three. The throw goes to second, and he is tagged out. The game ends with a one-run loss, and this missed sign ends up causing a lot of grief with the team. And Darnell is fined 1 million yen by the team for missing this sign and potentially costing him the game. Darnell thinks that a million yen is a thousand bucks, but it turns out that a million yen was ten thousand dollars. And we'll let Darnell take it from there. No, a million yen is ten thousand bucks. And I said, What for missing the sign? So I told our interpreter to come over. I said, Ten thousand dollars is an enormous amount of money for missing the sign. And I feel like I'm one of the better players. So I'm gonna have my wife put me on a bullet train tomorrow morning and I'm going back to the States. I said, Now you tell him that just how I asked you to say it. So he tells him. So, so I waited for the meeting to get over and then I walk up a flight of steps, take a left, walk down the hallway to my room and there's someone standing at my door. The meeting just got over. Why would anybody be standing at my door? There was a guy with an envelope with 10,000 bucks in it and it says, what I want you to do is tomorrow, I want you to give the money back and it shows that you made a mistake that you were more than willing to pay your fine. So the next day in front of the team, I gave the envelope all taken care of. So aside from that base running error, Darnell had that really good season, 302-29 home runs. It earns him a tryout with Colorado, and he makes that team, hitting 318 as a pinch hitter in 20-some games in 1997. But then he gets a call from Japan. The Hanshin Tigers needed a replacement for an injured Mike Greenwell, and they ended up offering Darnell triple his rocky salary to come back to Japan. And so, of course, he takes that. And he isn't quite as successful as the previous year, but he's okay. 242, seven home runs in 63 games. 1998, he tries out for the Diamondbacks in spring training, but he failed to make the team, and he decides to call it a career. So closing the book on Darnell Coles, a career line of 957 games, a 245 average, and 75 home runs in 14 major league seasons. Overall, David... How did he do in war? Minus 1.5 career war, thanks to his defensive difficulties. Overall, on the offensive side, he was positive, but had a minus 5.7 overall defensive war. Yikes. How about in retirement? He spent a few years out of the game. He spent time with his wife, Sherry, and their kids, Deanna, Darnell Jr., and Jared. And he was a high school coach for Deanna's high school volleyball team that won a state championship. In 2006, he took that coaching acumen and he took it to the minors as a roving hitting instructor for the Washington Nationals. He then managed in the national system at Vermont and Hagerstown and then was moved up to hitting coach for the Nationals AAA team. He then is hired on in the Brewers system, serving in many different capacities, managing in the minors, eventually becoming their big league hitting coach. After a couple of years, he's hired by the Diamondbacks, and he was fired after the 2021 season, but then hired by the team that gave him his first coaching opportunities, the Washington Nationals, to be their hitting coach. And in their announcement, they talk about Cole's record of success with players like Christian Yelich and Kettle Marte. Yelich went from being a borderline all-star caliber player in Miami to winning the National League MVP his first season in Milwaukee working with Darnell. And Nationals fans hope that that record of success 
with young players will drive Juan Soto to even greater accomplishments. So Darnell, really highly rated coming out of high school and a 14-year major league career. What do you think now that we've looked a little deeper into his background? Darnell was so highly rated coming out of high school. And from the look of his stats, you could be disappointed with a first-round number six pick. He was a really fast young player in high school, and he had that injury in high school, that football injury. His speed seems to have dropped off in the minors. He had many injuries and disappointments that could have derailed a career, but he ended up carving out a pretty good niche for himself, never without a team for very long, even though he rarely stayed with the same team all season. He had a a really good reputation, and teams wanted to bring him in. And he also had this reputation of being an incredibly positive person. And if you're a fan of any of those teams that he played for, you probably don't have a lot of Darnell Cole's memories, unless you watch those three home run games or those three error games. But here at the 1988 Tops Podcast, we like to celebrate some both forgotten stars and strange characters, but we also love guys like Darnell who were just around, able to hop in at a moment's notice and go one for four in a rare start at third base. I thought about Darnell in light of the recent lockout and something I read from Jeff Passan. He said, if you went and got the next 1,200 best players in the world, the product would suffer greatly. If you handed MLB teams over to any 30 competent business people, the sport would not suffer. Actually, it might improve. And I think we forget about how good MLB players are. And even in Darnell's time, all of those guys were the best at their school, the best in their city, the best in their state. And through various mechanisms, they may have succeeded or not quite lived up to their to their potential. And while Darnell Coles was thought of in high school among the likes of Daryl Strawberry, thought of maybe more highly than Eric Davis, he might not have had those same peaks, but he's an incredible athlete. And we should consider that when we discuss athletes getting paid to play a kid's game. These guys, even those that that we might forget about or not really have known about during their careers, were operating at a really high level, as Darnell showed in 1986 with that very good season. And that's why we celebrate guys like Darnell. And he continues to make the game a better place, helping young hitters realize their potential. Nationals fans should be happy with something that Darnell said. If he follows through on this promise, this will be a, a big deal. He said, I think with Juan Soto... What I've dug into there is that nobody under any circumstances is to mess with his swing. So if Darnell keeps (laughs) that promise, he should be able to claim another MVP under his tutelage and make Nationals fans happy. Yeah, it seems like a good plan. Very good story of a highly touted prospect who ended up with a long career and did it his way. So glad to learn about him. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you, Malcolm Allen, for the Sabre bio. And thank you to you at home. If you've got a great source for premium Jardinera, we'd love to hear about it on Twitter. You can find us at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.